All right, First Thessalonians chapter 4, turning your New Testaments. Uh, follow along, follow along. I think you'll get the most out of it if you open up, if you're, if you're ready to, to be in the text that we're in today. So we've started studying through First Thessalonians about a month ago, uh, and the plan this fall was to study at least this letter here that Paul, Silas, and Timothy write to the church in Thessalonica. We're taking a chapter-by-chapter approach, but today we're going to slow down and we're going to really just focus on the first half, the first 12 verses of chapter 4, and then next week we'll get into some really interesting parts of the end of chapter 4 and chapter 5, we'll, uh, in the beginning of chapter 5. So we'll save that for next week. Uh, working in the background of this sermon series has been this question, what does it mean to live in anticipation that Jesus is coming? Early Christians, especially those in Thessalonica, they lived with a daily expectation and anticipation that Jesus could come at any moment. An important word in 1 Thessalonians is this Greek word, parousia, which is transliterated for you up here on the PowerPoint. And at the end of each chapter, you see this word, it means coming or the coming of Christ, referring to the second coming of Christ. I know when Paul, Silas, and Timothy wrote this letter, uh, they didn't originally write it with verses and chapters and divisions like that, but the way that somebody came came along later and divided this up is they did it strategically. So every time they mention the coming of Christ, that's the conclusion of one chapter. So as I was studying and preparing for this sermon and for the whole series, I thought about uh, my about halfway through my sophomore year of high school, our athletic director resigned and decided to take a job at Dallas Carter. It was a a big leap for him, so it made sense, but it was a big loss for us because he had been around for a long time. He was a well-respected coach. He was feared. He had been successful. And so how do you replace somebody like that? Well, we hired a new athletic director, and a year later, or maybe even less than a year later, halfway through my junior year, they had already fired him. Like, it didn't go too well, this replacement. So we were in limbo. We were in the state of, what do we do? We're coachless now. And about halfway through off-season, my junior year, all of a sudden, our old coaches showed back up. It was very exciting. There was a lot of excitement in the atmosphere. It was very exciting. They showed up, and they started putting us through these rigorous off-season training, like you see in the picture here, mat drills, cone drills, sprinting, weightlifting, all of it. They were getting us in shape, and their main line of motivation for us was they kept saying over and over, he's coming back. You better get in shape. At first, we were like, what does that mean? He's coming back. Obviously, they weren't referring to the second coming of Christ. So who is he coming back? Well, the rumor started circulating that Coach Sedbury wasn't very happy at Dallas Carter, and he might be coming back. But it wasn't official yet, so the coaches couldn't say his name, so they just said he, and it just this ominous, looming thing over us, he's coming back. But that was what they motivated us with. And I think about that quote, he's coming back, so y'all better get in shape. To me, that's kind of the tone of chapter 4. 
We've the first three chapters in Thessalonians. We've looked at Paul and Silas and Timothy and their great love for this church. Some of their experience when they were in Thessalonica, uh, their relationship with them, the characteristics of the church, of sending Timothy, Timothy coming back with a report. All right, we've looked at all that the first three chapters, and now all of a sudden we're going to get very practical, especially for the beginning of chapter four and then the end of chapter five. What does it mean to live as a Christian? who anticipates Jesus' arrival, but knows that we have a way that we need to live here and now. So let's read verse 1 and 2 and and jump into chapter 4 here. Finally, brothers and sisters, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you learn from us how you ought to live to please God, as in fact you are doing, you should do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. This is the second time I've read this in this service. I read it in our scripture reading earlier. Uh, The point of this, kind of shifting gears in chapter 4 and getting very practical, is Paul, Silas, and Timothy, when I say they, that's who I'm referring to, are urging these Christians in Thessalonica to live a life that pleases God. But then they give them a compliment. They said, you're already living this way. You are already doing this. They're wanting to know, we're not condemning you. We're not trying to set you straight. You're already doing this, but we want you to do so more and more. As I read from a New Revised Standard Version, your translation may word it a little differently, but this word more is in there. And then we'll see it again in verse 10. We want you to do this. You're already doing it, but we want you to do it more and more. Basically saying, yes, you're already living this way, but don't become complacent. Don't settle for just the bare minimum. Yeah, we do these things. We're better than some people who live a lot worse lives than we do. Don't settle for that. Don't become complacent. Desire more. So naturally, I thought of Tom Brady this week. Anybody not know who Tom Brady is? Okay, he's been around for, James, you don't know? (laughs) I don't believe that. So I'm sure most of you know who Tom Brady is. He's he's been around for, since I was in high school, for two decades now. Even if you don't watch football, and even if you get annoyed when I use sports analogies in these sermons, you know who this guy is, because if you've ever watched a Super Bowl, you've probably seen him. He's won seven Super Bowls, and he's been to more Super Bowls than that. He's won MVPs. Well, every time he's on TV, which he will be tonight, I tell my kids, pay attention to this guy because that's the greatest football player of all time. So later in life, you can tell your kids you got to watch the greatest player of all time play live. 44 years old and still playing. Just won another Super Bowl this past year, and the question is always, will Tom Brady retire? What else does he have to prove? Michael Strahan on Good Morning America uh, back in early spring after – Tom had won another Super Bowl, was interviewing him, and he asked him, why do you keep playing? What do you have to prove? Like, what's the purpose in you you playing? You've accomplished it all. Nobody will ever catch you. And I liked Tom's response to this question. He said, I do this because I love it. I love playing. I I don't have anything to prove, but I want to play. 
I love playing. I love to throw a spiral. I just love playing football. And I looked at this as a comparison to how they set up chapter 4. You're already living this way. For Tom Brady, hey, you've already accomplished everything, but he wants more because he loves it. And we should want more. We should want to continue to be transformed by the Holy Spirit to live this Christ-like life because we love God. And God loves us. So you catch that in those first few verses. You're already living this way, but you should desire it more and more. Don't settle for the status quo Christianity, just the baseline bare minimum. Desire more. In verse 3, they start with this and says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. How many of you have ever thought to yourself, what's God's will for my life? I'm sure most of us have at some point. We go through different stages of life, and you think, Where do I need to go to college? What degree do I need to get? Career? Who do I need to marry? What is God's will for my life? Where do we need to live? Do we need to take this job or go here or there? We should be interested in what what is God's will for our life. And that is dealing with God's specific will for your life or for a church. But what Paul, Silas, and Timothy are writing about here is God's general will. No matter where you find yourself in life or what decisions you've made that have led you to this point, here is God's general will for your life, your sanctification. And they're going to go on and explain God's will for your life and how to live. But let's pause on this word sanctification. How many of you have used the word sanctification in a sentence or a conversation in the last week? Anybody? Okay, that's what I thought. It's not a word that we use very often. It's a biblical church-type word, so it's worth defining. I don't want us to get lost in what in the world does this word mean. Uh, There's a lot of definitions that I could have given you for this sermon, but I I chose to use the Holman Bible Dictionary. I I like the way they thoroughly define biblical words, so I I will often refer to the Holman Bible Dictionary, and, and they start the definition of sanctification with this. It's the process of being made holy, resulting in a changed lifestyle for the believer. Just pause on that. That's a pretty good definition of sanctification. Sanctified, holy, holy means set apart, same root word for the Greek word. So you could substitute holy living instead of sanctification, but it's the process of being made holy. And then they go on to say that we are set apart in God, we are made holy in God in conversion. So when we are baptized into Christ because of Jesus, because of his sacrifice on the cross, and us coming to Jesus and and confessing Jesus as our Lord and our life and being baptized in him, we are made holy. It's nothing that we can do or earn, but we show our dedication to God by living this out. So in my opinion, what they're talking about in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 is how to live into and live out our sanctification. And there's really three main little sub-points or focus areas in these first 12 verses of what it looks like to please God, to do God's will, or to be sanctified. And the first one is this, to abstain from sexual immorality. Let's read verse 3. I'll pick up, read verse 3 again, and then through verse 8. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from fornication, that each one of you know how to control your own body in holiness and honor, not with lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, 
that no one wrong or exploit a brother or sister in this matter. If it just pause on that for a moment, you may look at that and think, oh, is he switching and now he's talking about business and not cheating each other in business? No, I think he's still talking about sexual sin here, not wronging or exploiting each other. Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, just as we have already told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God did not call us to impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever rejects this rejects not human authority, but God who gives you, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Okay, this is a tough teaching. This is definitely not settling for status quo Christianity. Let's start with the end. Let's start with verse 8. Uh, what Paul, Silas, and Timothy are telling us is this does not come from them. This comes from God. The authority on this comes from God. So younger people, teenagers, college students, you know, maybe people in their 20s, I'm not real sure, just whatever you would categorize as younger people, they may look at something like this and say, abstain from sexual immorality. Well, that's just my parents talking, or that's just a youth minister, a preacher, a church leader, or what people talk about at church. They, they want us to live sexually pure lives. They want to rob us of joy and fun. But remember... That this teaching, it doesn't just come from your parents' preference. This comes from God. The authority comes from God. So they're saying to reject this means that you are rejecting God. So we need to keep that in mind. And we also need to remember that intimacy, and I'm using the word intimacy to protect the younger people in here, so hopefully you know what I'm referring to. Intimacy, physical intimacy, it is a gift from God within the right, proper context. Within the context of marriage... Intimacy is something that God has given us to enjoy. It's a gift. As human beings, though, for centuries, we've taken something that is a gift from God, and we've abused it. And we've turned it into something that's all about self-gratification. And we're self-absorbed, and whatever makes us happy, whatever pleases us. And so we use other humans as sexual objects. Right? So we've taken what was supposed to be a good gift from God within the context of marriage, and we've abused it. And that was certainly happening in Thessalonica. Uh, this is a picture of some of the ancient ruins of Thessalonica, and historians will tell you that all around this city and many of the other ancient cities were pagan temples. And without going into great detail, uh, some of the things that would take place at these pagan temples were sexual sin, sexual immorality, and one commentator said that these pagan temples almost operated like brothels. So that was all around their city, and in a lot of cities, not just Thessalonica. And what Paul, Silas, and Timothy are, are calling the Christians in the city to do is to rise above that, to be set apart, to be sanctified. To not live like your neighbors are living and like everybody else is living, but to be sexually pure. Strive for sexual purity. That would have been hard to do. That was a challenge in the first century, and it's still a challenge to get today in our world. We're really not that much different than they would have been back then. So abstaining from sexual immorality, that's contradictory to society. Right? Our culture around us, we are saturated in sexual sin, it's all around us. It's in our face. And what society teaches us is just do what makes you happy. Do what makes you feel good. Don't let these Christian people try to rob you of your joy. So 
however people would look at us as followers of Jesus, and I know we're not perfect, but we're called to rise above the culture around us, to live in a way that's contradictory to society. If you go back to verse 1, they're writing about how to please God. This is what it's all about. Live in a way that pleases God. So you may ask yourself, maybe you can do some inventory of your own life and think about your thought life, the things that you look at, and even your actions, and you ask yourself, especially when it comes to sexual sin, sexual immorality, or sexual purity, is what I'm doing, what I'm looking at, the way I'm living, behaving, is it pleasing to God? And you could just be honest with yourself and do some self-evaluation there. In these verses that we just read, Abstain from sexual immorality. Learn to control your own body and not live in passionate lust. You get the idea. But this is hard to do because everything in our society teaches us something different. So we need to be reminded at the end of verse 8, after God's authority established is established in that verse, that it's God who gives you the Holy Spirit. He gives you the Spirit of Jesus. When you are baptized into Christ, you receive this Holy Spirit And this is part of our transformation. This is part of that ongoing, ever-increasing, more and more life of a disciple. The Spirit of God that is within you should create holy desires within you so you're not alone. Even though this seems difficult and challenging, God has given you His Spirit to help you live this kind of life. And again, this is not settling for just the status quo. This is more and more. You're already living this way. We'll do so more and more. So how do we live into and live out our sanctification? Well, abstain from sexual immorality and then love one another. Sexual immorality is a tough topic. Loving one another is easier. It's it's a lot more comfortable to talk about that. So let's do that. Let's look at verse 9 and 10. Now concerning the love of brothers and sisters, you do not need to have anyone write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, and indeed, you do love all the brothers and sisters throughout Macedonia. He's already bragged on this church in chapter 1 about how they're setting an example for all these other churches. That last sentence there in verse 10, but we urge you, beloved, to do so. My translation says more and more, so I know that you're still with me. Will you say it with me? To do so what? More and more. Let's try it one more time. To do so More and more. They repeat that again, to do this more and more. Love one another is not a new teaching. You know about this. The church church in Thessalonica, they knew this teaching. This is a core teaching of Jesus. You can't read through the Gospels without seeing the fact that Jesus wants us to love each other and love others. There's nothing revolutionary here, but what I like, what I'm noticing is that the compliment of, you're already doing that. You're setting an example for other churches. You're, you're not just loving your own people, but you're loving others, and you're helping the poor and helping the weak and strengthening other churches. But we want you to keep pressing into that, keep pouring into that love to do so more and more. And not just love when it's easy. I, I jotted this down in my notes earlier this week, but it's easy for me at least, and I know for you as well, to love people who love me. If somebody shows me kindness and respect and they take an interest in my life and, and they want a true friendship and they love my family, you know, it's easy for me to reciprocate, reciprocate that love back. It's easy to love people who love me, but 
The kind of love, if you go back to the Gospels, that Jesus talks about is enemy love. Loving those who don't love you. Loving people who are difficult to love. And there are plenty of those people all around us, people that are difficult to love. Uh, The type of love that Jesus teaches is forgiveness, extending grace, seeking reconciliation. The love that Jesus talks about is going above and beyond. And I think that's what Paul, Silas, and Timothy are encouraging this church to do, is you're already loving, but do so more and more. Which again, that is not settling for the status quo, for the status quo, discipleship, Christianity, status quo, love. I was reminded of a a preacher. I won't say his name, but he's kind of one of these mainstream preachers that's He's on YouTube. A lot of his lessons are on there, and they get thousands of views, and he's got thousands of followers on social media. He's, get, he's a Church of Christ guy, so some of you may know who he is. And sometimes his teachings are a little blunt. Sometimes they are a little controversial. So guess what that means in the social media world? He's got a lot of what young people would say haters out there. He's got a lot of people that will bash him and trash him on social media, that say horrible things to him and about him. And according to him, in some of his lessons, he shared about some of the hate mail that he receives in email. But even though he's got a lot of antagonists out there, I admire his attitude because in one lesson I heard him say, and I think he really means it, he said that you will never do anything that will cause me to stop loving you. No matter how horrible they may treat him, he's saying, I am determined to always respond in love. This, to me, is that kind of love that goes more and more. So how do we live into and live out our sanctification, abstain from sexual immorality, love one another more and more? And then you can summarize verse 11 and 12 as live productively for the kingdom of God. Verse 11 and 12 is kind of picking up mid-sentence, but let's read that to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we directed you so that you may behave properly toward outsiders and be dependent on no one. So a couple years ago, in fact, it was fall of 2019, my great-grandmother passed away. She lived to be 101 years old. And a few weeks before she died, I got a phone call asking if I would conduct the funeral. We knew that it was coming. So I started making some notes, started jotting down some things in preparation for this funeral. And the very first thing I wrote down, I was writing it on my phone, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 11 and 12. Nanny is what we called her. I said, Nanny embodied this. Live quietly, work with your hands, be dependent on no one, win the respect of outsiders. This was her. My whole life that I knew her, she lived by herself. She was a widow for 38 years. She wasn't very needy. We would come visit. She would appreciate that, but she didn't really need us to do that. She was tough. Her career, uh, before she had retired, she was a nurse. And I'll give you an example of her toughness. One day she fell and cut her leg wide open. And we found out about this after the fact because she didn't call us to come help. She didn't go to the hospital. She went to the bathroom, cleaned her wound, and stitched herself up. That's the kind of person that she was. When I was in seventh grade, she used to pick us up from school and come watch us until my parents got home from work. And something devastating had happened to me at school one day, and I was in my room crying. I'm not too ashamed to admit that. I was just, like, crying my eyes out. 
And she came in there to comfort me, and she patted me on the back. And, and it was really nice of her, but she leaned in and she said, you know, crying is not going to make it any better. So if you ever wonder why I don't cry in public and, uh, and I struggle with that, it's, that was ingrained in me from my great-grandmother. That's the type of person that she was. She was tough. She grew up and survived the Great Depression, World War II, and, you know, she just she lived this life where she was tough. And she was always outside working in her garden up until the age of 95. She didn't get involved in other people's affairs. She minded her own business. She lived a quiet life. Her neighbors knew who she was, that old lady who's always out there working harder than any of us. So, naturally, this is the, the two verses that I use to describe her at her funeral. But beyond just my great-grandmother's funeral, why is this in here? Have you ever thought about that? You read through this, you think he's talking about pleasing God, the will of God, God's general will for our life, uh, sanctification, living this sanctified life, and all of a sudden he's talking about working and living quietly. What does that have to do with anything? How does that relate to sanctification? I get love one another. That's a core teaching of Jesus. I get abstain from sexual immorality. That's hard to do, but that's something that Jesus taught. That's core to the Christian faith. But this seems to me a bit out of place unless you look at the the context of which it was written in. Many historians believe that these early Christians, especially in Thessalonica, that they believed so much in the return of Christ that Jesus was coming at any moment that some of them had stopped working. Because in their mind, what's the point of working? If Jesus is coming back any moment, let's enjoy what we have left on this earth. So some of them had stopped working, and because of that, they had too much time on their hands, which probably means they started gossiping and getting involved in other people's affairs when they shouldn't have been, which could also mean that they lost the respect of non-believers. So you can see there's a problem there. And there's probably a good chance that the reason Paul, Silas, and Timothy include this in this letter, and then again in 2 Thessalonians, is they want them to not quit their jobs, but continue working until Jesus returns. Continue providing for your family, minding your own business, and just living a life where your hard work, living productively, can advance the kingdom of God because non-believers or outsiders, as the text says, will see the way that you live and be inspired by that, be drawn into that, be attracted to that kind of lifestyle. That's why I believe this teaching is in here. And I mentioned this in the first service, uh, this, the pendulum can swing the other way. And sometimes people read First or Second Thessalonians, and they use that as justification for being a workaholic. I know that some of you may be in a circumstance where you have to work 12-hour days, and life is hard, and you're trying to provide for your family and just get by. But I also know East Texas, there's kind of this pride of, I go to work at 5 a.m., 6 a.m., and I stay for 12 hours, and you don't really need more. You have all that you could possibly have. And, and I'm not singling anybody out. I'm just, I've heard this kind of language for a decade now. This passage is not an excuse to be a workaholic and neglect your family and neglect your church family. There's got to be a balance somewhere. It doesn't mean you completely stop working, but it doesn't mean that you use it as an excuse to become a workaholic. So you see the balance in there. The basic point is that you live productively in a way that advances the kingdom of God. You set an example for other believers. So we go back to this question. What does it mean to live in anticipation? Jesus is coming. So as followers of Jesus, how do we live in the meantime? 
Well, these are three things that they give us. Abstain from sexual immorality. Strive for sexual purity in a culture that that is very hard to do that in. Love one another and do that more and more. Not just people that are easy to love and to live productively for the kingdom of God. Some of you may think, I'm already doing that. So what's the point of this lesson? Well, remember, more and more. You're already doing it. Strive to live this way more and more. That's the lesson today. And this is not an exhaustive list of what it means to live into and live out a sanctified life. These are just the three things that that church needed to hear in that moment. And I imagine that maybe it's something that we need to hear today as well. There's probably a good chance that as you sit there and if you're doing any sort of honest self-evaluation with any of these three points, you may think, I am far from where I need to be as a follower of Jesus. And in just a moment, we want to invite you to come see one of us, see myself, or or talk to one of our shepherds, even if you need to go pray privately. But if you feel like any of this, you're like, you know what, I'm way off course here. I'm living far from God. I'm sexually immoral. I, I hate people instead of loving them. I'm distant from them instead of pressing into tough relationships. Or you're just not been productive and you spend a lot of time gossiping. Whatever it may be, repent or be prayed for. Come confess that to someone. If you're ready to become a follower of Jesus and you want to be baptized into Christ, come talk to us. We would love to have that conversation with you. Uh, We're going to ask you to stand back up. Tony's going to come back up here and lead us in song. If you need to respond at all, come see us, please, during this time. For all that you've done, I will thank.